This episode is brought to you by Mad Call Festival. Probably Madrid's biggest and best festival, Mad Call is returning once again this summer and it's going to be one to remember. Not only will there be massive names like Dua Lipa, Janelle Monet, Bring Me the Horizon and The Killers playing, because who doesn't love a bit of Mr Brightside after a day of pints in the sun? There'll also be tons of new buzzy acts like Nia Archives, Crawlers, Kneecap and Picture Parlour scattered across the bill too. Obviously, with it being in Madrid, there'll be plenty of ace Spanish artists to check out across the weekend. Plus, heading to a festival like this is the perfect chance to get a good dose of sunshine and culture, all while getting to watch some of your favourite bands and necking a cheeky sangria or two. This year's Mad Cool Festival takes place from the 10th to the 13th of July in Madrid, and tickets can be purchased now over at their website, madcoolfestival.es. Hello and welcome to Before They Knew Better, the podcast from DIY Magazine. My name is Lisa Wright. This is my co-host and producer, Giles Bidder. Hello. Today on the podcast, we have the one and only Howlin' Pele Almquist from The Hives. Yeah. He is a rock legend, Swedish rock royalty, and a punk through and through, as you will see by his hilarious anecdotes that occurred when we asked him, as we ask all of our guests on Before They Knew Better, to bring in one song, one photo, and one object that relates to hilarious, wonderful stories from from their youth. Pele to his friends, Howlin' Pele to his uh, adoring fans, of which there are many, um, had some excellent stories about being a young punk in Sweden. Um, and also, he will be bringing this sort of top A-grade banter to the stages of the UK throughout March and April when the Hives are on tour. And if you wanted to be in the Hives, and frankly, doesn't everyone always want to be in the Hives, uh, why not sign up for the Hives franchise rock show they are encouraging fans to create their own Hives covers bands. But until we all do that, while you're waiting, getting some inspiration, why not carry on and listen to this new episode of Before They Knew Better with DIY Magazine and Howlin' Pele Angvist. feel like there's been a sort of... Uh, like a renaissance of sorts. Does it feel yes. that way from inside Hives HQ? A resurgence. Yes, it does, actually. Good. I mean, uh, a given is that we put out the first album in a decade. I mean, that would do that, make that feel like that. Yeah, Because it's been such a long time. But, <laughs> but it's also been so unbelievably well-received. Not unbelievably, because it's good, but the fact that people actually notice, you know, there's a lot going on with the internet yes heard of it so you know the fact that people were were able to focus on the fact that we released an album is pretty amazing to me yeah i mean like it's strange though with you guys because i feel like even though like it surprised me when i read that it had been a decade because i feel like i've been sort of watching you play at festivals pretty consistently throughout that yeah time. we have we never really stopped playing like we, we just kind of like just we get a lot of mileage out of those songs <laughs> <laughs> do you ever get fed up of being like oh god i've got to do tick tick boom again or like does it still feel exciting when you're i mean if it's exciting if, if i'm not excited just look at the crowd or go nuts and then it feels good again like that's the thing with like your the big songs is that i play them so much that i don't have to focus while doing it i can just kind of enjoy the moment and then people love them so much that i kind of get drawn into that energy so that's that's all all right but it does feel wrong to not have new songs. Yeah. It's weird. Like time gets elastic. You feel like you don't know what year it is. And <laughs> there's nothing grounding you at all. Like I feel like I'm eternal and also like 
Am I living for a second or a thousand years? I don't know. It's really <laughs> messes with your sense of time. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, nice to know that things haven't got too existential and <laughs> mental <laughs> over the last yeah. 10. Yeah, you sound really, really grounded and good. Uh, well, now I can pull myself out of it now that we actually made a record. Now I feel like a normal, like I exist again. Excellent. Congratulations. That's a nice feeling for anyone to have. On existing, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's lovely to exist, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, like monkeys, how has you've obviously been mates with those guys for a while, right? Like, I feel like that's been a relationship between Hives and Up to Monkeys that has been going on longer than this tour. Yes. I mean, uh, that's how kind of they got started is they heard the Hives and the Strokes. They went to a Strokes show and Hives on the same month, I think. And that's why they formed the Arctic Monkeys. So we were a very like definite early influence on them. And then we toured with them like 15 years ago in South America. And that's kind of when we became friends. And then we did this tour now. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I, I, I think I love that band. I think they're amazing. It's like my, the only band that are that big that are good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. And that's a hard combination to achieve. <laughs> well, you know, like ACDC and Rolling Stones are amazing, but like, yeah, the only young band that play at that level that are, that I like. Emirates was special, wasn't it? Mm, I, went I mean, maybe they're even the only band of that kind of like uh, in, a, in a younger age that are doing places that big. Yeah, so it's weird a, to think, uh, actually, isn't it? Like when you kind of think of those massive, because even bands like The Strokes, like they wouldn't be able to sell out that sort of level show now, no. I don't think. Whereas, well, it's also like it's the, you know, the British kind of protectionist uh, loving your own thing. Yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> if we're the really, strokes really... were from the UK, that would have been <laughs> that would have been massive. This is true. Is there a sense like when yeah, like you say, you've you've toured with them fifteen years ago, they're they've cited you as influences. Like do you feel like a sort of older brother kind of relationship with them? Like how does it how's the rapport? Yeah, but more like if you're if you it's more like if your younger brother became Beyonce. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, okay. We love them, but we're also a little envious of them. Yeah, but you know what? Salam just got a great career as well. So, there's room, yeah, for, there's room for both in this world. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. We are, maybe we are the Solange to their own thing. Not really. Yeah, but, you know, Solange with, like, I think we're more things. like the Destiny's Child to their own thing. Yeah. I also think this, part, this, we're at the end of this reasoning now. I don't know where to go. <laughs> You go wild on stage and I'm sure you've spoken about it a hundred times only since it happened a few months ago, but smashing your head with a microphone by accident and then turning that into a t-shirt and it's yeah. sort of like a meme kind of thing. That's you know, life life gives you lemons, man. Turn them into a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. If life gives you lemons, make the lemons into a meme is the, uh, is the sure, modern yeah. way. I mean, Christ, like, that did... Like, were you okay? Like, did you feel like you were going to sort of black out then? Or like, what, what actually happened? Well, there's, there's so many doctors at the Arctic Monkeys show. Right. I guess because if you have a stadium show that big, so like 40 doctors took care of me right at the show. I've never been so uh, coddled in my life, <laughs> which was nice. <laughs> so it's very, it's the best treated little wound I've, I, on my body. Okay. And, uh, well, no, I just bled a lot and I thought it looked kind of cool. Like, it didn't hurt beyond that. I mean, there was like, maybe there was slight whiplash. My neck hurt a lot after that. Okay. I remember... Probably from reacting to getting the mic in my face. But 
yeah fair i remember uh i think i did a phoner with you ages ago and you were talking about a time when you did a festival and you tried to jump around a corner of a stage and fell off and concussed yourself or something like that yeah does that ring bells or i guess it wouldn't ring bells because you were concussed but uh yeah i I don't remember that no i i do remember it i i jumped it's true that i tried to jump around a corner and then I fell off stage, landed on my head, and passed out. <laughs> but I didn't know I passed out because it was like I just remember like the feeling of you know that in Star Wars when they get out of hyperspace. <laughs> that's what it felt like. I felt like zoom, and I was in reality again. <laughs> and I was in reality because our guitar player, Vigilante Grossman, was shaking me by the shoulders, saying, "Are you okay?" Which, if I would have hurt my neck, would have been a very bad move. Right. But that's how I woke up. And then when I woke up, it's like. I fin- and they're like, are you okay to finish the show? And I said, yes. And I finished the show. And then afterwards, there was a doctor that came up like, so they, the security guard says you passed out. That means you've been concussed. And if you're concussed, you should avoid loud noises and bright lights. Right. Perfect. Yeah. So I did like an hour of a rock and roll show after <laughs> that in like full stroboscope, you know, one million decibels. Oh my God. So then they strapped me to a stretcher and drove me down from this the top of an alp which is where we were playing <laughs> and they put me in the swiss hospital it was in switzerland the swiss hospital which was like you know they look like james bond movies that's like the most clinically clean right. perfect hospital yeah. i've ever seen and then there was a nurse whose name was troll <laughs> she had a name tag that said troll and her job was to wake wake me up once every hour by flashing a flashlight into my eyes to see if if they changed uh, so after that, I was like wrecked after that. it was the worst night of my life. Right. Okay. Like not because the concussion, but just being woken up by trolls <laughs> once an hour. <laughs> Were you an accident prone kid? Not really. No. Like, and I feel like I've had 20 years of daredevil stunts and those are the only two real altercations. So I feel like it's just like, it's the, the, the risk reward ratio is still pretty good. Yes. <laughs> Even Big if time. not a daredevil though. I mean, Iggy Pop, like man. He hurts himself all the time. Yeah, what was that? Do better than him. What's that story about Iggy Pop? There's no story about him being flattened by a fridge once or something. <laughs> Have I made that? Up? I'm sure there's many. Do you know? <laughs> he always seems very. He seems very accident prone. Yeah, he's yeah. But I guess you know, uh, no risk. Kind of part of the show. No reward. And he's Iggy Pop, so he wins. When you were young, the show's about being young. Um, even if you weren't like a sort of daredevil kid, I'm guessing, you know, start, started in bands or started playing instruments early, had the calling yeah. towards the rock and roll sort of lifestyle. Like, what can you remember, like, when you first heard either, like, you know, rock music, punk music, something that you kind of thought, like, hold on, this is, this is what I need this speaks to me this is for me yeah i I was six years old and it was acdc's for those about the rock album uh on cassette from like uh an older kid down the street like five years older and we got that cassette and we played it on a little tape recorder me and my brother and just thought it was the most exciting thing yeah and I probably still do it to this day, actually. <laughs> uh, and uh, then, like, there was, like, a lot of... I didn't think it was, like... Because they seemed like superheroes. I didn't think that was possible to do. Mm. It's like being an astronaut or something. Uh, 
So, but then like, I guess six years later when I was like 12, I discovered punk music and that seemed easy. Yeah. <laughs> like comparison. Yeah. I mean, so that's, that's kind of when we got into like making noise ourselves, I guess. So the photo that you have brought in for us is a photo of you and your brother. Um, looking yeah. very, I mean, how old do you reckon you are in this picture? I don't know. Four or five. I don't know. What is it? Yeah. It's a very cute picture um of i'm guessing two people <laughs> that when then went on to have a lot of sort of less innocent rock and roll adventures <laughs> but at that point in your life like what were you i mean what were you like as a kid were you quite a, a sort of adventurous boy no i was pretty i was pretty quiet i was like planning for the first 10 years of my life <laughs> not really doing anything just watching and learning and then after that, I was fully formed. But yeah, there was definitely like, I was pretty uh, passive on the surface. I tried every sport, didn't like any of them. Spent most of the time to myself, didn't talk a lot. And then all of a sudden I exploded into this extrovert character I am now. Well, but there was very like on or off. That's fine. I mean, what do you think sort of made the switch for you? I think if you want to call it that, of finding my calling, like that I knew like, Oh, here's the thing I can do better than anyone else. Mm -hmm. And then that gave me the confidence to be who I felt like I needed to be. Like, I don't care if I can fix a car. I don't care if I'm good at painting. I don't care if I'm good at, you know, doing my taxes or anything. Because I got this one thing that I do better than pretty much anyone. And that gives me the confidence to suck at everything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. I mean, like, was it a pretty sort of instantaneous um, realization? Like whenever, you, I mean, can you remember getting on stage for the first time? Yeah, and I think that I was really nervous and stuff. But even when we were shit, we were very entertaining. <laughs> I think that was always there. Like even when, you know, there were barely any songs or anything, but it was always like people were mesmerized by us on a stage. Even if they didn't like the music, like we always have that kind of X factor. And I don't know why really, but I feel like that was there before we were like a good band or anything. Like, and like all the friends have said that, like when, you know, they everyone would go see our show regardless of if they liked us or didn't like us or hated us or whatever, because at least it was something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever have any it, sort of... It prompted some kind of reaction in everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, did you have any sort of... Because uh, now I think, you know, there are certain things that you do on stage. You've got, like, bits where you'll all freeze. There's obviously, you know, getting everyone down and jumping. Like, I feel like there's certain sort of yeah. hives, tricks in the arsenal that are like, oh, okay, these are, these are ways that yeah. we know the crowd are going to go mental. Like, what were you doing? back in the day when you were first road testing how to be a front man and then i don't really remember i mean less of those things but <laughs> some of those things have always been there but i guess it was always like the same uh, it was kind of a, the same character like we even had like kind of a crisis because it's very like um there's a lot of like bragging and uh like megalomania yeah. in the hides stage show <laughs> and that was kind of there it was like nine people in the crowd and we were like, we're the biggest band. We're the best band in the world. Like you're so happy to see us or whatever. And that was fun to us because there was nine people in the crowd. Yeah. There was actually kind of a crisis when there was like, now there's 6,000 people in the crowd and we go, we're the greatest. And they go, and they agree. <laughs> and it's like, like, that's very different. Do we even like that dynamic? Like, what are we going to do? <laughs> Cause it was not built to be popular. It was built because it was awesome when you were unpopular, they were just like, 
because I feel like the most important thing you can be is unstoppable as a rock band. Like that's what that mic thing was about. Like you crash your head, you're bleeding, but you like you don't you kind of just keep going and pretend like nothing, you know, like mm -hmm. nothing can affect you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that was the same thing. Like we don't care if it's like two people or five hundred people. Like we're gonna regardless. Like we're gonna do our show because we're doing this for us. Mm. And I I love when it feels like that. Like I've seen bands with like an, an amazing like arena level show for twenty six people, and I've seen bands that like complain when there's fifty thousand people. <laughs> so it's all about like uh, I think for that that for me that's like what separates the bands from the non bands is if you have that thing like where it's all internal like you're doing it for your own reasons. Yeah. I'm way off topic now. No, it's Where great. Were I love no, I love that. <laughs> I think that's so interesting also because it's like constantly on a tangent. I've had a lot of coffee today to offset <laughs> the jet lag. We love the tangents. The tangents are what it's all about. Um, but I do think that's like um because that sort of underdog or like uh the jokey underdog spirit or like what's the opposite of an underdog sort of if you are an underdog but you're kind of professing to be an overdog is it an, an overcat <laughs> an overcat exactly yeah the overcat no, I think it's mentality. like I think the fun thing is that we do both like I mean there's definitely something self-deprecating about it but there's also self-aggrandizing like glorizing ourselves or yeah. whatever you want to call it like it's definitely like part of both to not be afraid of like yeah we're, you know we did that terribly or whatever, but <laughs> I think people kind of like with our band or with, with kind of anything really, I think people kind of pay money to see other people believe in themselves more than anything else. Like if I, if I see like a band where I don't like the music, but I feel like they believe in themselves, I'm into it. Like, I like that. Like, yeah. yeah like tell me what to like. Like, I'm not like, you're not here to serve me. Like I, you know, I like that dynamic where it's like, you know, you, you tell the band it's really into what they do, but you don't know, understand what the fuck they're on about. Like, mm. I kind of like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're always looking for validation from others, in a way. Yeah, like, and I think that's the job of the artist is to not do that. Like, this is fully formed. Like, look at this. Look what I made. <laughs> <laughs> Go back to this lovely photo that you sent, though. So, I mean, I'm guessing this is Nicholas that's in the band and that's in the yeah, photo, yeah, right? exactly. It's my brother. Yeah, I my mean, I... Brother. And I think that there's a stereo in the background, as I recall. And that's the stereo we heard ACDC on. Nice. So it's yeah, like, nice. I guess, you, the, you, I was, I, I can't really remember the assignment, but it's something like a photo that like kind of defines your child. And it's like my brother who I make everything with and there's a stereo system. And that was where we heard the music. Nice. So that was like, that photo encapsulates kind of, plus I don't have a lot of photos of myself as a kid. So it had to be that one, but that kind of encapsulates what, what I'm still doing, I guess. Like, if I'm six in that photo and I'd heard ACDC, I'm probably not, I'm probably younger, but I heard ACDC on that stereo. And since then, I'm basically doing the same thing. <laughs> with the same man. So, like, with the same person, which is, like, pretty rare. I, I feel like I've been in this band longer than most people I know have had, like, breakfast. <laughs> like, I feel like I've... I've, I've, I've weirdly like rocks rock and roll is supposed to be like kind of a flash in the pan like you do it for a few years and then you burn out and you're like drug addict and you're going to rehab and then you become a doctor or whatever yeah like that's the usual trajectory but for me it's like this has been what i do my entire life now Wait. and that's strange to be a veteran rock and roller 
<laughs> you're touring with somebody that's a family member you haven't had an oasis style fallout as far as i'm aware like has it always been a fairly harmonious I think, well not like many many fallouts throughout the years yeah. we used to physically fight every day until we formed a band together <laughs> and then we started arguing about the music instead <laughs> uh so we're constantly arguing and i think that like the the only difference between us and the o Oasis Brothers relationship is that they quit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like you, you can have a, you can have a really shit marriage and just uh, shit marriage and just stay married. <laughs> like it's fully possible. <laughs> but I think that our, our relationship has changed. It used to be more like we wouldn't get along on a personal level until, like when we were kids. And now we, we do get along on a personal level, but we don't get along on a professional level a lot. <laughs> So we've kind of just like uh, come to the conclusion that we leave each other alone to do. I mean, he's mm -hmm. going to do his thing better than I'm going to do his thing. Like mm -hmm. kind of just leave each other alone to do what we do. Mm -hmm. And that seems that seems to work pretty well. So we're like in the same band, but separately. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we've stopped trying to negotiate. Now just... it's just like either you decide or I decide. There's no middle ground. Because the middle ground is just torture. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think, I mean, the fact that you're the front man, does that mean that you were always the more sort of uh, outspoken or dominant brother? Well, I am younger, though. Not, I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, for, for, for everyone outside the band, uh, that seems to be the case. Like, I'm the guy everybody asks every question because I'm like the front man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and Nicholas can just like walk around in the wings and not be noticed so much. But I think everyone in the hives thinks that that's amazing that I have to do all the celebrity shit <laughs> and they can just kind of hang out at home and wait for that to be done and then go on tour. No one is like jealous of the attention of being a front man. Yeah. They're like, we, uh, you know, like, we get money and less attention. That's awesome. You Even know? though you were younger, were you the one that was kind of leading the pair of you as kids? I think, no, I think that like, we were very different. I was like a kind of a misfit and he was very well adjusted. Like, he did everything you were supposed to do in the town we came from. He like was good at sports and, you know, had friends and all that sort of thing. And I was always kind of, I guess I was kind of born a rebel, which sounds cool, but it kind of isn't because there's a big cost that comes with that. It's fucking annoying to never want to do anything anybody else wants to do. Mm. Uh, it makes you kind of lonely. And it's also like hard work to constantly be swimming upstream. But that was just what I was. And that's, you know, mm. that's how that worked. But he was always better at compromising with reality than I was. <laughs> but, then, but then I guess it changed because I, I mean, I don't think he would have, he would have started a band without me. I had to like start the band and then he could join when it was like kind of ongoing, I guess. That is like Oasis. Yeah. True. Yeah. It's very simple. I just read that Oasis book because we were doing some signing and it was like an Oasis book for five pounds or whatever. And I was like, I don't, I never listened much to their music, but I always thought they were really entertaining. So I kind of read, I read a little bit of that, and it seemed there were a lot of things that I recognized definitely. <laughs> Did you start playing guitar before your brother then? Uh, no, well, maybe there were our dad played guitar, so it was always like a guitar around the house. But Nicholas was like good at it before me. He was like a shredder. He can play all that Ingwe Malmsteen like neoclassical shred metal stuff.
So the thing that you decided to bring us in as your object was a flying V guitar, um, the most oh, yeah. rock and roll of all guitars, obviously. Um, when did that come into your life? Well, I remember distinctly like I was on the floor of our living room playing with Star Wars toys. And our dad, who was like a jazz guitar player, walked in and he had, had some kind of like, I don't know, epiphany or like moment of insanity where he was like biking home from the hospital where he worked and bought a flying V on the way. <laughs> like he had no plans to buy a flying V, but he just like kind of biked into a music store, bought a flying V in some kind of Legend. weird haze <laughs> and then showed up in the living room like, look what I got. And it was like he was him with the flying V. <laughs> and that was like exciting like oh our dad is going in he's gone mad <laughs> but that's kind of cool and that guitar was like i you know i guess when i understood that guitar could be something else but like country and jazz songs mm. uh, so who did he give it to you or we Nicholas? didn't give it to any it was his guitar but we would fiddle with it sitting down playing a flying v it's like the most annoying thing on earth <laughs> But he would do that, you know. <laughs> Just sort of playing gentle. Well, like play playing gentle jazz on a flying beat. <laughs> oh, can you remember when it got passed into your? Is it? Did it? Was there a sort of a ceremonial passing of the V down to you at some point in your? teenagers not really it was just it was just at the house you know you could pick it up and play it if you wanted to it's like kind of like this the way stuff in a house belongs to everyone in the family mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but i mean it was dad's guitar but we would play it and i remember like i guess no i bought a guitar after that from uh yeah i just bought a guitar later yeah still have what it. the first were you learning ACDC for the first songs you were learning? Did you, and did you get lessons? Did you have No, it was like playing? punk stuff. No lessons. It was just misheard interpretations of <laughs> completely autodidactic and like inept Definitely. versions of like punk songs. <laughs> but then I realized that because punk songs were so simple that it was easier to kind of make your own. Yeah. At what point did Easier that than learning someone else's to make your own. Yeah, I mean, did you write songs? Was that kind of you and you and your brother sitting at home trying to be in like a really early version of the hives, or or was that just you? No, not really. Out? It was way more complicated than that. Kind of can't go into it. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> intriguing. Um, yeah. yeah, I kind of love the idea because I mean, like, uh, I think loads of people, their parents will have guitars or instruments knocking about the house. A flying V is obviously significantly less common, and maybe sort of. I mean, like holding yeah. that, like that sort of uh, that makes you automatically it felt cool. feel. It felt like unlimited exactly, power. Exactly. Yeah. But what I really wanted though was I wanted a dirt bike. I didn't want a guitar. But since Dad was like he hated engines and was into music, like as soon as we gave him an inkling that we wanted to play music, you know, guitars and amps would just kind right. of show up. But I nagged about a dog and a dirt bike my whole life, and I got neither. <laughs> so yeah, there was there was probably parenting involved in the hives being created yeah i mean way. it worked clearly um unless you uh now have a secret sort of side i mean i could have been maybe i could have been an amazing dirt bike rider did your parents go to the early hives shows would they come along and drive you and mom drove us to a show in like the neighboring city and stuff and uh well they were i mean they were supportive of the fact that we wanted to do it but they were not they just thought it was like a bad environment like and it was like those early punk shows was a probably a terrible environment for young teenagers like 
people trying to give you drugs instead of gas money for the show and stuff like that. But we navigated that pretty successfully. What was it I think. like in? I mean, like the Swedish sort of punk scene when you were growing up. Was there a lot of like little sort of basement venues and things, or like what? Where would you be going when you're going to gigs? Yeah, that sort of thing. But also, like we 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 realized that like Sweden is kind of too small for our very niche music, especially at the time it was very niche. We so we started going into like mainland Europe, like because in Germany is so many more people that you can play like every day in Germany. Mm. Whereas in Sweden, you can play like maybe you can play a weekend and then you got to, you know, say two, two more weekends without shows and like a week mm. with shows. So mm. in order, we knew we needed to play a lot to get better. So we just immediately started kind of touring Europe. I mean, Europe that's on a lot more because I mean, when you think like British bands or whatever, very lucky where you can go and hop on a train and go around the country and there's X amount of cities where you can go and do these shows. Whereas like it's a bit more difficult yeah. if you've got a literally country hop around europe <laughs> yeah well well it, i mean it's sweden is like a tenth of mm. the people right than the uk so it's harder to get like momentum going like there's just and really long drives and few people so it just kind of made more sense to go into like germany and france and all that and it was also like such a fun adventure to be like 18 in a van like you know driving through paris and stuff it was it was really because we we didn't think that we we didn't we wanted to be good and no one we knew that were good that we right. thought were good was popular so we thought that that would, there was like an inverse relationship between good and popular so we <laughs> thought everything that was popular was shit and everything that was good was not popular so we figured we just like we spent three years being the best band that we can possibly be and then we're probably going to have to get jobs because <laughs> we didn't think there was an option of like being both good and popular so that was kind of another identity crisis where like so now we're really popular. Does that mean we're still good? Or did we just turn bad and now we're popular? That's funny. Do you think there's something about growing up in the countryside that, I mean, there's there's lots of musicians and, you know, you read about in autobiographies and in documentaries, a lot of like great musicians and great writers are from rural areas. Yeah. And I feel like there is some kind of, um, you know, positive coalition there's there's a thing there you know because yeah i mean I, I i was born in the in, in the countryside and it's fucking boring so you have to make bike jumps you make skate ramps yeah you start bands you have to create your own entertainment because there is nothing else like you can't like you can't enjoy other people's culture because there is nothing like and i think that vacuum is definitely why and it gave us time like there was seven years of where we could just kind of fart about in the basement without having mm. to like show it to anyone Mm. So there was a long like period of like trial and error where we didn't have to be like in the public eye. And, and then, you know, to other people, it seemed like we just kind of showed up fully formed, <laughs> but I there mean, was definitely like making it? your own, uh, making your own entertainment. Yeah. I think it's like, what I think what we did right. If we did anything right is we, we, we spent a lot of time deciding okay. what we are not, what we don't want to be. And a little bit of time deciding what we wanted to be. And then just hammering that, like rehearsing hundreds of hours and playing hundreds of shows, even though there were no venues, like there were maybe like two or three places you could play in our hometown. Okay. And we played like 21. Like we rented the Scout oh, yeah. Association's cabin and like put some beer in there and had a show. We like we played an empty, we broke into an empty mall and played there with all oh, our friends so and fun. stuff. Like it was very like guerrilla like we play everywhere because we just like needed to 
Because it, it was what we did, you know. But there was no no one ever gave us an opportunity or like there was no one to call it. It's like it's so funny when people like ask us like, "What do you advice do you have for young bands?" Like, there's no <laughs> advice that's gonna help. It's just like, how do you get someone to call you and give you a show? I'm like, yeah. set up your own show. Like, I don't, you know, you can't wait. <laughs> were you the scourge of the Swedish police at that time? Did you have a few run-ins if you were sort of uh, doing guerrilla gigs everywhere? <laughs> I mean, this is going to sound really scary, and maybe it was, but they they uh, shut the police station because our town is tiny. They shut the police station, so everybody right. knew that there was forty five minutes at least for the police to drive from the neighboring <laughs> town over to our town. So you could do anything for forty five minutes. Like Nicholas lived across the street from a toy store, and it got broken into all the time because everybody knew, like, oh, somebody's going to call the police. And then the police going to take 45 minutes to drive over here. So we got 45 minutes to just crash this place, steal all the playstations we want and leave. And it'll be fine. <laughs> so we could do a show over like 30 minutes before What's the police would show. They just make sure you leave before that and it'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly. Be, yeah, exactly. Yeah, thank God that your songs are short. Uh, that's like we got a, a lot of fights. In, like, we got in a lot of fights in Germany, though, over the shortness of our sets. Because they wanted punk rock, but for like two hours, because they thought they needed like uh, a return on investment, yeah. like the real rational people. Right. And our thing was like, we never, we don't want to play more than 20 minutes. Like that's <laughs> our show is 20 minutes, like get used to it. And he would be so mad. Like, didn't you like the show? Oh, I loved it. But that's why I'm mad that it wasn't longer. Right. I always thought yeah, that was weird. I mean, like, so you, do you want a worse, longer version? <laughs> Yeah. Also, God, imagine. I mean, like, <laughs> I always kind of look at your shows and think that looks exhausting. Like, especially when you're in full, full suits in, like, you know, some hot European country in the middle of summer. I don't know how you don't pass out. Yeah. Imagine having to do that for two, like, you know, a proper like Metallica length set. Like, that would <laughs> be sort of physically impossible. I would imagine. Like, have you ever? I mean, you must have come close to passing out. You'd be surprised, though, how few people make that connection. They're like, why didn't you play for two hours? I'm like, did you see that? Were you at the same show I was at? <laughs> I was basically like doing aerobics in a sauna while only breathing out for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember your Glastonbury set. For, was it this year or last year? God, all time has sort it of gone a bit fluctuating. Yeah. yeah, and that uh, I think that was a very hot day. And I think there was like... Uh, you, you seemed uh, slightly delirious, I think, at some yeah, point yeah. halfway through that. There I was, was, some... I was also, it was like early in the morning for me, too. Mm. I'd just woken up and like, because so did, we did a show late la the night before, got in the tour bus and drove and then woke up and did the show immediately. So it was like this weirdest 24 hours. It was like, it just like, you do a show, fall asleep, and then you wake up and do a show immediately. It was so bizarre, but I love that show. That was so much fun. <laughs> So we've been talking about uh, all the punk rock things that uh, affected you as a youth and the song that you've chosen. So neither me nor Giles, when we were talking about this, recognised the song that you've picked because I'm guessing maybe it was... I can't remember what it was, though. You have what did picked... I think? KSMB with a song called 602, oh, yeah. which I think um, in Swedish maybe was called, I'm not going to try and pronounce it because it's going to be. Yeah, but, um, 602. 
Yes, that's it. Tell us about this band and this song. We are completely new to the world of KSMB. Yeah, well, they were like Sweden's like second most popular original wave punk band. Uh, and it's like this mass, there's like a lot of people in the band. There are two singers. And it really, when I was like 13, I heard it and I really, I loved it immediately, kind of. And in the Hives, that was always our band. The, the biggest one is a band called Ebba Grön, who are like pretty much a straight Clash ripoff. They just kind of translated it and did it in Swedish, and people <laughs> love them. And they're very good at that, but KSMB seemed more unique to us. It's maybe yeah. slightly less punk, but... <clears throat> and the song is kind of like a... It's like a Bob Dylan song that has like a million verses that are all kind of the same, just new lyrics. I love like James Bond, kind of like spy guitar... That's why nice. I love the Dead Kennedys. Like, I love that that kind of guitar style. Yeah. And it kind of has that as well. And it's got great... It had great lyrics about being in jail. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Classic. Uh, okay, yeah. Yeah, it's really good. And about be, being addicted to drugs and stuff. And, and I kind of got it, even though I was way too young to be, like, addicted to drugs. But, you know, if you're a good storyteller, you can make you feel what it feels like to be in a situation you've never been in. And I think the song does that really well. Unfortunately, it's in, it is in Sweden, so Swedish, so most of your listeners won't know what he's talking about. But maybe you can enjoy the music anyway. Yeah, could you go see them? Were they active? When you well, they, they reunited. You couldn't when I became a fan, but then they reunited for like a couple of shows in 1992. And I saw them then. And I, I remember really liking it. I remember getting like a T-shirt signed by the band. And I said, it was like, well, what do you want me to do? You want me to write anything? And I just go, well, just just write something. And then he wrote, just write something. <laughs> <laughs> so that served me right. Was it sort of a balance of Swedish acts and then sort of, you know, British and American and, and yeah. people singing in English? It was it was Swedish first. You know, it was a couple of Swedish bands first, but then kind of immediately following that. It was also like the same thing to be into metal as punk at the time, like in the time we come from, like everybody liked like Slayer and the Misfits. Right. So people have these leather jackets where they'd write both metal and punk bands, which <laughs> I don't think was really the case in other places. Like you'd write like Metallica on your leather jacket and also like Misfits and all that. Mm. So I was into both, I guess, but the punk thing was more my thing. I was really into Dead Kennedys and Misfits and the damn kind of like horror theme punk, mm. I guess. And the cramps, yeah. like that was my thing. Did you have uh, another with all of the people tipexed on it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I didn't wear it a lot though, because we kind of immediately started like wearing suits. Because it would seem like the, the most punk thing you could do if you're playing to an audience of all punks, like the least punk you could do is like be conformative and play in a punk outfit. And and the suit was so such a provocation to these punks <laughs> that it just seemed kind of perfect. Like they'd actually get like physically angry <laughs> at the fact that we wore suits. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a symbol to them, like suit, yeah. enemy, you know. <laughs> Did you get in a scrap? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got in scraps in Germany from punks. Like, but usually the people that will fight you because you're wearing a suit are so drunk that they don't really pose a threat. Right. <laughs> Would you ever sing in Swedish? Was there ever a time that you thought, okay, am I going to sing in Swedish or in English? Yeah, I think we did for, for a minute. Uh, we had like some version of the Hives that was in Swedish, but kind of abandoned it pretty quickly. Mm. Do you think that was part of the kind of rock star, you know, 
spotlight pro- spotlight projection because the biggest rock stars are speaking in English. Was that almost an antagonistic thing to do? Well, it's just like the language of the language of in, in, of rock. You know, it's like the vernacular and all that, and it sounds it's easier to make it sound cool than Swedish. So uh, that was just kind of like, uh, and also like we knew that if you play niche music also limited it to only a swedish audience seemed kind of dumb to us like if we if we sing in english at least we can get like five fans in every country and we you know have something that was howlin Pele. we love him uh, we love all of our guests of which there have been many so far on the first series of before they knew better we have had killer mike we have had bastille we have had felix white may muller olivia dean mxm tune so many james acaster go back and listen to the previous episodes of before they knew better with diy magazine give us a like and a subscribe and then you can have the last few episodes of the series as we near the end of chapter one and they will come straight into your inbox on a tuesday morning the november issue of diy magazine is out now in print and online it has king gizzard and the lizard wizard on the cover we've also announced some new live dates with two of our favorite new bands hot wax and big special they're going to be heading out on the road for diy's now and next tour 2024 in april tickets are on sale now so give diy a read give those tickets a purchase give the podcast a like and subscribe and then maybe just go for a nap and we'll see you next tuesday This episode is brought to you by Rock in Rio Lisboa, the sister event to Brazil's iconic music festival Rock in Rio. The Portuguese leg of the event is set to celebrate its 20th anniversary with one of its biggest editions yet and over 80,000 attendees across its four days, of which some of them could be you. Taking place over two weekends this June, some of music's biggest names will be taking to the stage in Lisbon. We're talking Ed Sheeran, we're talking Doja Cat, even the Jonas Brothers are getting in on the action and with each day specially curated by genre, there's literally something for everyone. I went to the town in Rio last year, which is curated by the same people as Rock in Rio. And it was, I'm going to say, one of the wildest festivals I've ever been to. This year's Rock in Rio Lisboa takes place on the 15th, 16th, 21st and 22nd of June. And tickets can be purchased now via their website, rockinriolisboa.pt.